0: Scandalous. She's so fabulous. Scandalous. 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 If you don't know, now you fucking know. Scandalous. Notorious. She's so scandalous. Now.
1: Perhaps the most celebrated man in our industry, master of his own destiny, tenacious, passionate, and fierce to sign and see to fruition some of the greatest themes of our time. Italico, White Zombie, Nina Simone, Cindy Lauper, and so many more. In his own words, you can't be good, you've got to be great. Welcome to the Scandals Podcast,
0: Michael Lago. How's your day so far? Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. Great. I had a lunch just now with one of my favorite people. I think you've met him. He's big and handsome. His name is Robbie Old, and he plays drums for Generation Kill.
1: Okay. And, I uh, haven't met him. I think you have yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rob won't be pleased that uh, you won't remember but that's okay but anyway he's one of my favorite people and he's a drummer and soon Generation Chill are going to be going on the road um, this year for maybe 10 or 12 nights with Flotsam and Jetsam one of my other favorite metal bands who I signed I think in 86 or 88 to Electra and we made a great record called No Place for Disgrace
1: I try not to get starstruck and it's very funny and I just don't. But your accolades and just, oh, I did this. I did this. I did this. I'm going to keep on going with the interview, but I want you to know I'm blushing
0: and it's not oh, the Oh, that's <laughs> wonderful. I love it. Great.
1: Yeah. Well, kind of like what I just said, it really warms my heart to be speaking to you. I've watched your documentary. who the fuck is that guy in your spirit? you ingratiated yourself in the scene, realized that people were real, the industry is real, and you could be a part of it, and I resonate with that. So I get to sit back, hear the stories, relive all of these awesome memories. I'm so excited, so let's get started. Sure. Yeah. So getting to your early years, you seem to have that certain je ne sais quoi, something special about you. What kind of kid were you in school and growing up?
0: Sure. Well, I might incorporate two answers into one. Um, I was a young gay Puerto Rican kid and growing up in Brooklyn. Uh, I always like to say I believe that I came out of the womb loving music. Um, I was a bit, I was studious. Studious, that's a word? Yeah, I was studious and I was quiet. um, Lots of times as a young teenager, early teenager, I would sit on our stoop in Brooklyn and listen to forty fives, and uh, just the music was my um, everything. And you know, I would also watch you know all those shows on TV: Dick Clark's American Bandstand, and Don Cornelius' Soul Train, and uh, the Midnight Special. And I was thrilled to hear and see all of those shows. Because it opened up my mind to everyone from Aretha Franklin, to Alice Cooper, to Todd Rundgren, to Grant Funk, uh, to all of these uh, various types of artists. And I was always thrilled that I could hear a variety of music. And to this day, as we speak, I still love a variety of music. You know, I love the Great American Songbook, which is people like Tony Bennett, to Black Metal, which is this new artist that's just come out. Um, he's on the road currently, and I was really shocked that that was a little piece on him in the New York Times recently. Uh, his he's called Black Braid. It's heavy. It's heavy.
1: I had him on the podcast. What? Yes, it. I i worked on it i love him so i worked on getting him for so long he made me wait like eight months to get an interview with him and i finally got an interview with him oh and good it was it was wonderful to talk to him and you can definitely tell it's kind of fun to get in on the ground floor of something special absolutely i agree and you can tell He's like a baby artist just starting out, but his story, do you know that he just put out music mm-hmm. and got put on the decibel, um, decibel, like death metal tour. So uh-huh. like his first tour was the decibel tour, which is a huge tour to get on. That takes, it. you know, most artists years and years and years. It sure. just doesn't exist. So the whole time I was just going, what, you know, and I got invited to the show, um, Dark Funeral, so black metal, death metal, and
0: those are the I, shows that just passed in May, correct? Yes, yeah. Yes. I don't know how I missed it, but I missed it. But he's coming to play uh, Brooklyn Meadows October eighth, so I'm definitely not going to miss that. And uh, you know, I sent him a DM on IG, <laughs> and I, you know, I said, I know my name is Michael Olago. I gave him the whole Michael Olago story. And I said, if you're looking for a manager, we should talk. So it took him like weeks to get back to me. I was like furious, just a little bit. And um, he wrote back to me and he said it was nice to hear from me. But, you know, he he does mostly everything himself and he's not looking for a manager. So I just wrote back to him again. And I said, so be it. But maybe if you like, you can watch my documentary. And I'm definitely coming to see you in... um, in October, and congratulations on all the wonderful press you've been getting. So, yeah, BlackBraid is one of like my newest favorite artists. And I just started listening to that second album, I don't know, last month or so.
1: That's well, that's beautiful of you. And Next. that would be yeah. such a wonder.
0: <laughs> yeah, we, we can't <laughs> talk about BlackBraid the whole time, just in case you're <laughs> listening as well.
1: No, uh, it's funny. I mean, it's fun. It's fun no uh but that i like you know at this phase in your life you can do whatever passion project you want so you know so i think that would have been like really fun for you to wave your magic wand and you would be like "Bibbity, bobbity,
2: boop here you go we'll
0: see we'll see what the connection is like when i see him in person uh yeah in october it'll be i think it'll be fun i do
1: we will have to have you back and talk. (laughs) Here you go. Well, something you and I have in common, and I think a lot of people have in common on the documentary, I think we talked about how you would just lock yourself in your room for days and days and days and listen to music. And I recently saw a show that um, I saw Stained. And Stained, you know, Stained and like a lot of those bands, were what I listened to when I was in high school and it really developed me so much and solidified. And I'm a grown woman now, but boy, if it doesn't take me back. So do you have some of those bands, some of those songs that just to this day, like, Oh, that's, that was everything to me back then.
0: Well, since I'm a bit older than you are, uh, let's just say that, um, as a pre not preteen, but as an early teen, like I mentioned, I would watch those, uh, music shows on television. I also uh, started listening to uh, bands like Alice Cooper, Roxy Music, David Bowie, uh, Todd Rundgren. Um, And then, I don't know, at some point, 1977, rolled along, and I was hanging out a lot at CBGB. I was um, a bit underage, but Hilly Crystal, the owner, let all us, kids in it was our home away from home you know so i was lucky to see and hear people like johnny thunders from the new york dolls richard hell um then at one point there was a something hilly brought in called the british invasion and that was uh let's see eddie and the hot rods uh, a punk band called chelsea who I loved because they had a gay singer named Gene October, who I snatched up from Seabees one night. I brought him home with me. Um, So, oh, wait, I can't get off the beam here. Okay, so (laughs) lots of stuff that I listened to when I was young. Uh, And so in 1977, it wound up being a lot of punk stuff, like um, The Dead Boys, uh, who I, me and my friend Jody Ribello, we started a little fan club for them, and we made a zine named after their, um, one of their songs called All This and More. But, you know, we were, like, young kids, and we didn't know, like, are we gonna really start a fan club? So we really didn't do that. But we never, ever missed the Dead Boys growing up. Um, or at least in, you know, 1977, 1978. Um, so it's always nice to reminisce about things like that, um, now, because, uh, you know, at some point, all I wound up caring about was hard rock and heavy metal. So I don't know if I actually answered your question or not.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to uh, know who the bands were who touched you in your early youth that just really solidified
0: sure, love for sure. music. Yeah. Absolutely. It was a, it was a wide variety. It's always been a wide variety with me and music. Um lately, <laughs> uh n- in 2023, I listened to more dark black metal than ever before. Uh, for me, the heavier, the better. Um, I, I just love things that are that heavy. It just kind of like, for me, it clears my head, believe it or not. Um, I don't care if artists, certain artists are ever going to get played on the radio. It, I mean, maybe they do. But if I love them, then you know what? I'm here to, you know, rah, 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 and um, support.
1: That's awesome. So I'm a big proponent of that as well. I love country. I love rock. I love Mm -hmm. death metal. I've been in a great folk kind of mood the past, like, four or five months, and I would love to turn you on to an artist. She's called Paris Paloma, and I'll DM you her, but I think you would really like some of her songs. Oh, wow. And Thank you. Yeah, she's just like, oh, it feels good. And it's like, I put it on to just feel good and just like relax and feel effervescent. And it's good. And it's really did good. Say, so I love. Did you say Paris Paloma? Yeah, Paris oh, great. Paloma. Okay. Great, great. Yeah, great. great. Thank very, you. Very, yeah, very wonderful. And I um, also, I love death metal. Have you, so my favorite death metal band to listen to? And kind of zone out and relax is fit for an autopsy. Have you heard of them? And do you listen to them?
0: Yeah. For a while there was a show that unfortunately got canceled called Gimme Metal. And um, it was on for a long period of time, and there were always guest artists who hosted, and maybe every other month I hosted the show, and I would play things that were so dark. And yes for an Autopsy, I have played. Um, But I love bands like uh, Black Anvil and uh, Necrofire from Houston. Um, There are two young bands that I just saw recently at St. Vitus in Brooklyn called Morbid Cross, who I'm crazy about. They're a thrash band. And uh, their friends played with them from Greenville, South Carolina, called Never Fall. So those are two brand new bands to the audience that may not know about them. Um, Warby Cross is from New Jersey and Never Fall is from South Carolina. And they're thrash. And I, I just lo- I think they're great.
1: It's exciting. Yeah. And it's, they, they, thank you.
0: It's always for their I hear new things, where people sometimes these days say, well, is there any good new music around? Well, there's lots of good music around. You have to just seek it out. A lot of the things um, I love are not on the radio. So I'm always asking friends what they're listening to. Or if I go to shows and I see young people there, I introduce myself and I want to know what they're listening to and why.
1: I love that. Still that ever classic a guy who needs oh,
0: to know what's going on. Yes, yes. You know, I love my job. I did it. I did it well for almost, um, <clears throat> excuse me, 25 years. And it was... Um, just great to work with great artists, whether it was you know the guys in Metallica, Metal Church, Blotsam and Jetsam, um, executive producing Cindy Lauper. Um, my favorite artist in the whole entire world was Nina Simone. And um, we were friends the last 18 years of her life. And I got to executive produce um, her final recording, which was really, for me, a blessing. It's a very sad record because she wanted to make a record about love and loneliness and loss. And that's exactly what we did. So we kind of, we both loved these two albums, Frank Sinatra, A Man Alone, and Billie Holiday, whose last record was called Lady in Satin. Well, if those records aren't like slit your wrist records, I don't know what is, But we, but we kind of like, We were like, okay, we love those records, but we don't want them to be that dark that people aren't going to listen to them. But anyway, I was just thrilled to always to to work with Nina um, before she passed in
1: 2003. I have definitely an empath. And when you talk about those records, like making something so deep and real, I got a visual in my mind of like walking up to like the edge of a pool that's empty and jump in or like walking up to you know just being dangerous like walking up to the More. edge a roof. and there's something powerful you know everything it's yin and yang there's mm-hmm. something powerful about going that deep and facing mm-hmm. that type of darkness well i just got back from new york myself and i got a good fill at the city went outside the city Wonderful. but I really wish I could have gone to Lemoore's in the heyday of Lemoore's. Up front, center, small venue, and it feels dangerous. And that's what I like about rock. That's what I like about metal. What were some of your best times at Lemoore's back in the yeah. day?
0: So, like a funny thing, um, as a young teenager, once again, um, I lived in the Borough Park, Bay Ridge area of Brooklyn, under New Tricked Avenue, which is where the elevated subway was. We lived, me, my mom, and my sister Cheryl lived in a railroad apartment. But in the front of the railroad apartment was my bedroom, which if I opened up my window and just look up, that's where the train was. So I slept through everything and anything. So we were on 55th Street. And L'Amour was on 62nd Street. So I would always walk to Lemoore and stumble home drunk. Uh, it was a fabulous place. It was a fabulous in that, it, I mean, it was nothing like, it was like a box, you know? But um, we got to hear and see a lot of our favorite artists there. You know, I saw Metallica there. I saw Wendy O. Williams there. Uh, Armored Saint, uh, Overkill, Um so many of those bands back then, which was, oh boy, let's see. I'm thinking more like around uh, 82, 83 um and it was just a fun place because everybody wanted to go to Lamore to hear and see one of their favorite artists.
1: Well, that's fun. and you know I um it just feels so reminiscent of the good times of going to shows when I was younger. So
2: your stories really make me smile. so thank you for sharing those. Conceived on a dare to make the most metal coffee there is so you know I'm intrigued. You actually can make your day more metal just by starting off with Concept Cafes Coffee, home to coffee lines from Cannibal Corpse, Cavalier Brothers, Billy Lane's Choppers Inc., Buffalo Chip from Sturgis and more. And seriously, follow them on Instagram because you'll never guess who they have coming on next. It's big. You don't have to settle for boring branding or bland flavoring because they source locally which is especially cool for the blood brothers Cavalera brothers coffee because theirs is actually sourced locally in brazil how cool is that all the artwork on the coffee bags is seriously collectible so it's like another form of metal merch all roasted and packaged in-house in a super clean environment which i especially care about because i care about what i put in my body And they are a small business, so we're keeping that metal economy alive. No coupon code needed because the coffees are that reasonably priced. See for yourself at conceptcafes.com. Again, that's conceptcafes.com. And follow their metal coffee journey on Instagram at conceptcafescoffee. And from out of town or an Austin local, don't forget about the bands in town. I'll be at all the metal shows this fall at Germania Amphitheater, aka CODA. And if you want a chance at meeting your music heroes before the show, a lot of bands do coda-carding before. So go do some carding, grab dinner, drinks, and an unforgettable show at the Germania Amphitheater. If you haven't checked out Rockabilia's site in a while, you're not paying attention. They recently bought a warehouse full of vintage band A lot of them are long out of print tour designs that you can't get anywhere else. Only available in extremely limited quantities and sizes. They're adding more of these shirts to their site daily, so make sure to keep checking back to see what's new. Use code Scandalous for 15% off. Again, that's code Scandalous for 15% off at rockabilief.com.
1: And they say history lives on when you pass it down. So what would you like to pass on to the younger generations to live and in infamy just a little bit longer about New York in the 70s and 80s?
0: Well, I think everything is kind of cyclical. So not everything is going to come back. And I'm sorry if you were too, one was too young to go to CBGB, Great Gilder, Great Gildersleeves, Max's Kansas City, and the likes, and Hurrah, which was on West 62nd Street Uptown. So all I could say to younger people is, sorry, but, um, you know, Sometimes the internet is really our friend, and um, like today. And uh, one can go to um uh, YouTube and pull in, put uh, you know, type in Dead Boys 1977, you know, Misfits 1982. And it's not like being there, but if you have a nice screen on your computer, you can feel that energy, of what was going on back then. You know, um, they used to call New York Fear City back in the day. But even as an underage, younger than um, 18-year-old young man, I would take the train from Brooklyn with my little knapsack and my Nikon camera or sometimes my Polaroid camera or this little Kodak plastic Instamatic camera and I would go to shows and snap pictures um oh so back then i had no fear as a young little 15 16 17 year old taking the train from brooklyn by myself and going to all these places because i read about it in the village voice and uh so i would go see all these artists and i was i was thrilled i was thrilled and uh you know a lot of times i drank um so i would come home a little tipsy um but, you know, I, I, I guess my mother let me go out um, as a young kid because she knew I had to go and hear the music. And I always did well in school. So that was like a plus as well, and which is why I think she sometimes let me go out because I always did well in school. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there were times I'd come home on a weekday at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning, um, getting off the elevated train, walking right downstairs to the apartment, and um, just having experienced that, like I said, everybody from the Dead Boys to Cherry Vanilla to the Plasmatics to Alan Vega's band Suicide, um, there was always something going on in the city. And that was the beautiful thing about Manhattan back then. People may have had fear. I had no fear about being on the Bowery. I just, you know... I knew how to walk down the street. Uh, I was from Brooklyn. Nobody was going to F with me at all. Um, So I don't know. It was just um, not a blessing, but uh, I was grateful that I knew about all these things to do because all those things helped me once I started booking the Ritz, which people know these days as Webster Hall. I was 19 years old. And I started working at Web's, at the Ritz when I was 19. And that happened because I was going to the School of Visual Arts and um, i working at a pharmacy on Astor Place there in the East Village. And I say it in my documentary, who the S is, that guy. I don't know if people say the F word here, but whatever. Um, and I was walking down the street and I saw a beautiful Art Deco building. And there was a little white piece of paper that said either... Um, Uh, I think it said video club opening. And I was wondering, like, what the heck is that? So I, you know, ballsy me. I walked into this venue. It was beautiful inside. Excuse me. And you have to remember, it's 1980 and it's the advent of MTV. So that's just starting. And um, I walked in and this man in the balcony, which I like, into The Wizard of Oz. And he's like, kid, what do you want? I'm like, I want a job. He said, well, do you have a resume? I said, no, I don't even know what a resume is. Well, he thought that was funny. So he called me up to his office. And again, we, not again, but I mentioned this earlier. <clears throat> we started talking about the Great American Songbook um, to what was going on in the underground scene in New York City. We talked for a while and he said, you know what? I'm gonna give you a job here. You're gonna answer the phone. You're gonna get my lunch. And you had to open my mail, and I thought, "Oh my God, I'm in the music business. This is what I want to do with my life." And really, I was. It was the beginning of me being in the music business. I was like a sponge. So every my boss's name was Jerry Brandt. God rest his soul. He died during the pandemic about two years ago. Uh, he was fabulous. He was my mentor, and I would listen to everything Jerry said on the phone. If we knew that he was talking to Ian Copeland at FBI booking or Rob Light at ICM or um speaking to Tina Turner's management about having her come back do have her come back to the Ritz because she had been not performing for the longest time and let's do five nights with her and I would listen to him and the booking agent about what these things cost and how, what you would pay the artist, and we were we were looking to always fill a fifteen hundred seat room. So, like I said, I was a sponge. I listened, and about a year into the job, besides getting his mail and opening up uh, opening up his mail, getting his lunch, and answering the phone, I was the book assistant booking director there, and it was wild. It was fabulous, and I learned a lot. And um, at one point, I don't know, I thought that there was more. So uh, I was going out with this young man named Mitchell Krasnow, and his dad was leading Warner Brothers. And he said, you know, Michael, my dad's leading Warner Brothers, and he's going to re-up Electra. Because I think it was, uh, I hate saying this, but I think it was in the cramper at that time, except they had like one hit artist, this guy, Greg Kin, who was on Berserkly Records in, in California. And he had like a number one hit called Jeopardy, our love is in jeopardy. Uh, Bob could have cared less. Bob now could have cared less about that style of music. So I don't know. Three years go on. I'm at I'm at the Ritz, 1883, and um, I interviewed for a job at Electra. And Bob, I had the same conversation with Bob Krasnow that I had with Jerry Brandt about all types of music. But Bob was an art nathan. So there was art thrown into that whole thing. And we talked about you know the New York art of the day, whether that was Jean-Michel Basquiat, Keith Haring, uh, Richard Hamilton. There were a whole host of artists and art dealers that I knew a lot about. And Bob was impressed that I knew all of that as well. So he said, great talking to you. I'll give you a call in the next two weeks. So... Um, so i don't go off on a really long tangent uh so in about two weeks he called me and um his assistant ruth rosenberg said michael bob is on the line for you please hold and he said michael i, I thoroughly enjoyed our talk and i am offering you a job in the AR department at electra i think my <clears> mouth <throat> dropped open i had a tear in my eye and when i hung up i called a friend of mine in the business i said I got an A&R job at Electra, but you gotta tell me, what does AR mean? Well, they <laughs> laughed. they laughed in my face. Um, for the audience who doesn't know, um, uh, uh r A&R is artist and repertoire. Um, the r department is the most important department or I'd like to bring in um at a record company because the A&R person is um f- finding great talent, nurturing them, um, and helping them to make Records, uh, you know, for me, great records tell a story. And um, great albums always have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it takes the audience somewhere. And that's what you want. And I did that for 25 years, and it was wonderful. And the second act I signed was Metallica. Um, and talk about wow factor. And I'm going to say one more thing, and then I won't keep going on because I could go on about Metallica till the end of time. Funny, here we are when we, let's see, we're in mid-August. About two weeks ago or 10 days ago, I went to see Metallica at MetLife Stadium uh, in New Jersey. And that one Friday was August 3rd. It was James' 60th birthday, and it was the 39th year to the day that I signed Metallica to Electra. And that happened at the Roseland show. And it was when they were playing with Anthrax and Raven. And the beauty also of that show was that I signed Metallica, Atlantic Records signed uh, Raven, and Island Records signed Anthrax. So everybody walked away, happy campers. Oh, now I'm tired.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know. Uh, what a happy end! Doesn't always end up like that. Yeah, sure. True. true.
0: Right. But, you know, these were young people, who in their twenties, early twenties, who really wanted it. As epitomized yeah. by, like, when I say Metallica, Raven, and Anthrax, these are still artists doing it today. Of course, the biggest of them all have been has been Metallica. Um, they've been hard workers their whole lives. Uh, they always knew what they wanted, and they did it. You know, and um, a lot of people still complain to me and like, well, you know, you know those first three records are you know the only records that are good. Okay, whatever you say. So yes, Kill 'em All was great. Ride the Lightning, brilliant. My favorite Metallica record. Uh, Master of Puppets, fabulous. But an artist cannot go on making the same records over and over again. Things be, could could become stale. You don't grow from that, and because they always listened to themselves mostly and not me, um, they were always developing. They were all, and you know, one may not love every single one of their albums, but uh, these were these are wildly charismatic people who always did what they wanted, always had a point of view. And here we are talking about them 39 years later and me having seen them at MetLife Stadium, 80,000 people each night. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. Wow.
1: So I do want to kind of revisit your time at the Ritz because I think it's really fascinating that you became an assistant and then were a, book, were a booking assistant at the Ritz. Yeah. And- The amount of information you learned, can you pass on any of what you've learned? And I don't know, any of the talking to Tina Turner's reps like that's crazy, fly on the wall kind of stuff to remember any of those conversations, anything that stood out about it, anything that we're like, oh, that taught me this. Like, this was a really good lesson to learn. Like, I'm very curious about, you know, all those times you've listened in on the phone.
0: Right. So, I, um, over the years I got a little crazy with drugs and alcohol
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: but I'm now I, I in October I'll be 16 years clean and sober back then as a young person I, I said this so I think what the audience can take away is if there's a if you wind up getting your dream job you really have to pay attention um so my dream in my dream job my um, paying attention was being a sponge. <laughs> And listening to every single thing Jerry said to artists well, more managers and booking agents on the phone so that I could learn how to speak to Ian Copeland and talk at FBI and talk about uh, ticket prices and uh, booking and where at one point does the artist uh, make more money because of ticket sales. Um, and then it just became almost easy breezy for me um because like i said i so wanted to be in the music business i didn't know how what that was going to be like as a young person because i don't play an instrument but that didn't stop me because i knew i had to be there
1: with lately yeah you're singing to my heart you really are
0: Just... oh good mm-hmm.
1: that's how i've always felt as well and it's very inspiring to be talking to because that's how i've always felt like i don't i don't want to be in a band geez mm-hmm. that's a lot of work <laughs> like band practice is a lot being a musician is a lot i've never had a passion for that or wanted to do that but i've always just been drawn to be in the music industry so it's so yeah. fun listening to you talk about it it's what a joy right it's just so fun that's exciting and what a great quote um if you've better if you get your dream job, you better pay attention. I think that's a great quote.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: There's a lot of
0: there's a, not, a lot of knowledge behind well, that. And you know, it's also I always say when artists want to send me materials still, although I don't listen to things as much as I used to. But uh, when I was either at Electra or Geffen, I said it better be great because there's a lot of good out there. And good. Sometimes, good is even okay to listen to, but I knew in my heart of hearts that um, if I was going to be involved with artists, they had to be great. They had to have a certain charisma. They had to have a certain point of view. They had to be. They. They had to be saying something. Uh, I don't know if I just said they had to have universal appeal, but I'll say it again. Um, so I knew whether I was working with Johnny Rotten or James Hetfield. Or when our chairman signed a young woman named Tracy Chapman. And Bob said, uh, you know, uh, Charles complimented at SBJ Publishing signed her in publishing deal. And Brian is probably will be her A&R person. They were friends because they went to Tufts University together in Boston. But in the end, I wound up being her A&R person. And um, it was a delight because what a beautiful recording she made. So it was always funny. I was on this line with Tracy Chapman and I was on this line with John Lydon trust me, each conversation sounded nothing like, you know, like the next, it was a certain way that I would speak to Tracy. And then there was a certain rock and roll, you know, feel the vibe of how I would speak to rotten, you know, who wasn't so rotten after all. Um, but, uh, I was always blessed that I got to work with who I consider great artists.
1: Absolutely. And I think the overwhelming theme about you is that you have that magic about you. So you can see the magic in others and your entire music industry career shone so bright because it's just kind of like you were going around being a magician making lightning strike where you wanted it to go. And I think that's something that's very special about you. Thank you. Absolutely. So you got your first AR job at Electra, probably at the heyday of all the fun and the glitz and the glamour of being an oh, AR guy, I would yes. say.
0: It was insane. I was 23. Um, you know, we also had in Los Angeles office and there were bands on the West Coast on the Sunset Strip. Whether they were bands like Guns N' Roses and Poison and uh, Great White and uh, all the bands that I can't even remember at this very moment, you know, it was eight in the Dawkins, George Lynch, all the artists that I was going to soon be working with Metallica, Metal Church, Flotsam. Um, there was incredible energy happening. Did I say Molly Crow? If I didn't, Motley no. Crow? <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> Um, For me, I always gravitated more towards the heavier artists. But, you know, all of that was happening at the same time, you know? So how wonderful to be in the mix of all of that, even if I wasn't working with um, certain artists, but we were all hanging out, you know, on the Sunset Strip, you know? I was always fun. I always wanted to be part of all that. And, you know, now I was. And never mind that once I signed Metallica, oh boy, everybody wanted to talk to me at Electra. And I don't say that for ego purposes. It's because, you know, they wound up being like one of the biggest bands in the world. But then they were climbing very quickly. You know, they were selling out venues. The second album, uh, Ride the Lightning, was, was even more brilliant than the insanity of Kill em All. And then because they're young, wise people. They make a record like Master of Puppets, which is a heavy metal classic. And um, so I think I'm going off the, the beam a little bit here. But, you know, the 80s were an incredible time for me as a young a person to be out there mingling with other a people, with other people from record companies. And uh, it was just like the time was just so right. And, you know, when Bob started, Bob Krasnow, our chairman, started um, putting the roster together, you know, we already, we had Metallica. He was on an airplane with Anita Baker. He was talking to Seymour Stein, telling Seymour Stein, you're not taking good care of the cure. We want the cure. So I forget what Bob and Seymour, who Bob and Seymour traded the cure for, but we wound up getting the cure. Um and Molly Crew. And there was a, a, a wide variety of extraordinary artists just on Electra alone. And even prior, not prior, uh, later on when I wound up making a switch to go to um, Geffen, you know, they were signing people like Cher and Whitesnake and, and Beck and Sonic Youth. And I come in and signed the Misfits and Kane Roberts, who I simply adore from Alice Cooper's band, and White Zombie, million seller. So um, I was always happy to be in the thick of it all. And I'm glad that I knew what the heck I was doing.
1: Absolutely. So to also be very clear about it, I think it's really interesting. There's like seven, eight different things that an A&R person does. So, what are all those different things besides, you know, all the glitz and the glory that you just talked about? I think someone would also want to know, like, what the heck does an AR person
0: actually do? Right. Sure. sure. Um, well, if I've signed you already, I'm going to probably be listening to all the songs you think are going to be on your album. So, I, I'm still old school where I cut and paste stuff. I mean, I'm on the computer as well, but in the 80s, You know, I had a notebook. I would make notes of um, songs uh, and listen to the songs on the demos and what the arrangements were like. I would talk to the artists about uh, the material and if I felt like there could be a potential hit song there or not, or if they were one short of a hit song, we would talk about that begrudgingly to the artist. Um, But, you know, I always wanted to... uh, always elevate the art and the artist. And uh, so that's what I was there for, listening to material, um, making sure there was enough songs that hopefully we get, hope hope to have a hit record. Um, Like I said, I love when records take you on a journey. Now that we've listened to all the material, both the artist and myself, we're going to start looking for a producer having conversations and meetings with producers to see if they feel what the, the artist and myself feel. And then, you know, I put a budget together. Um, and let's see, I don't know if I'm forgetting anything, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that does go into making a record before you, uh, actually get into the studio, which is the few things that I just mentioned to you. Um, and then hopefully while you're making this record, <laughs> you're praying to to the metal gods, to the gods, to the heavens, that, wow, I hope this is going to be a hit record. Um, so, I don't know. I think I answered your question.
1: Absolutely, you definitely did. And that tells me, if I didn't know it before, like I knew A&R people had like a big hand in it, but that really solidifies and tells me oh, so much of, yeah. uh, you know, you're like another member of the band, essentially kind Kind of sort of, kind of sort of, yeah, kind of, you know, kind of sort of, yeah, a little bit. Sure. Because you have a big hand in their art and how it's perceived and how it moves forward.
0: And how it's presented. Yes. And also, you know, it's like, um, when you say I could be like the, the, the fourth member, the fifth member. Um, but it's always, it's always, um, great to have those extra ears that you know the band is 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 listening to their songs and doing their thing and they want to just do their thing but um I would pop in and just give them more guidance you know so it's the extra set of ears that's always very helpful as well as the ar person
1: absolutely and I wanted to ask you, you know, Metallica's rise was so—you know—astronomically. There aren't words for it, really. Is there anything that was kind of special about the way you guys promoted Metallica that kind of helped? Ha- you know, helped make happen what happened. You know, was I'm really curious about. You know, oh my God, Metallica blew up. I'm like, okay, like what were the steps that you guys took? I'm kind of curious about that. Yeah. Of like, okay we did this we did this we did this we did this oh. is there kind of a list of things that you guys did to make that happen
0: mm-hmm. okay we'll start at the beginning i'll try to be as concise as possible uh they have made a record called kill them all with a, a little label called Force records god bless johnny z and his wife Marsha, who have since passed so god bless them um john and i became colleagues very quickly um they had money to make a couple of records. I think they made an Anthrax record, a Testament record, a Raven record, and a Metallica record. John wanted me to sign Raven. He thought they were going to be the biggest bands in the whole world. I gave them $5,000 and I said, give me back five fabulous songs. He gave me back five fabulous songs. But the problem was, I heard Kill Em All. Kill Em All was unlike anything I had ever heard before. It wasn't like traditional metal. There was... Hard rock, speed, punk, all meshed into this debut record. And I thought, oh, I have to sign these people. Uh John was not happy with me. The label was not happy with me, Mega But you know, they couldn't do for them what a label like Electra, who is part of Time Warner, could do for them. You know, major, major corporation. So um We're talking. I let it know that I didn't want to sign Raven, that I was signing Metallica. Metallica was starting to make Ride the Lightning. And, you know, they were the buzz band back then. They were the band, the young, excuse me, the young band making the most noise. And, um, you know, with good reason. They were fabulous on stage. They were crazy and relentless. And, People just took a, a liking to them from the get go. So um, we wind up signing them. The first record we put out with them is their second record, Ride the Lightning. We already know that there really isn't, um, it isn't a radio record at all, no matter why. So I think some of the people in radio were wondering, well, Michael, could you um, edit? Oh my God, edit one of the songs. And I thought to myself, if I ever mentioned editing a song back then to Lars and James, they would shoot me. I would never have their uh, approval ever again. And so I had to in in one of our Wednesday or Monday marketing meetings, I had to tell marketing, promotion, radio. There is no radio song on here. Maybe college radio will wind up playing playing them, uh, but no, we are not editing anything at all whatsoever. So the key thing was to put them to give them enough money for the next year to go on the road, and so it was about advertising it all. Of the corporate magazines like a billboard and a cash box to um, all the publications that uh, marketed and promoted hard rock and heavy metal, whether that was hard rock rip, uh I just drew a blank, but uh, it, it had nothing to do with radio. It had to do with magazine uh, promotion and giving the money to go on the road. And that just, the more they went on the road that year, the more people got to see them and they just started blowing up. It was just the nature of the beast that they were that great back then, even, that it just started blowing up. And um, and like I said, here we are in 2023. They're bigger and better than ever. And they play stadiums. It's a beautiful thing.
1: Yep. it's The ball has only rolled uphill ever since. And that's... Sure. That absolutely does answer my question. I have another side question. So going into that meeting, did all of your experience in the industry just make you feel untouchable or were you a little nervous? Were you cut? solid in your frame going into that meeting telling them that there's no radio hit here? We're going to have to do the zines and we're going to have to do our best marketing in all these other realms and I don't have a radio song for you. Did that scare? I mean, like, what kind of person are you? Did that scare you at all, or are you just balls
0: of steel? No, all uh, all the time. Keep keep in mind, I had only been at the job two three years. It was my first job at a corporation, um. So I did have some fear, but I knew I had to stick up for my band. I knew what had to be done, and that was that. You know, there was no arguing. You know. Uh, Bob Krasnett used to say uh, a lot of times if there was a band or a single artist that had a radio hit, he would say, if you can't get it on the radio don't come to work tomorrow and he meant it. Thank God I didn't have that problem. It was about Bob, we got to give these young people enough money to go on the road for the next year we have to do advertising in every market that they're going into and uh, all of that that I've been uh, saying to you is like Mm -hmm. the rest is history yeah that
1: even paints more of a picture so you know you always hear about your history but it's kind of interesting to me to kind of know what you were thinking at the time you're like okay i know i'm right but it's 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 not not scary going into the meeting and saying that you know
0: but it was nerve-wracking because like i said i was a young person this was my first day in our job and most of the um, The folks who worked at Electro were seasoned people, the head of marketing, the head of promotion, the head publicist, the head of radio, you know, they weren't all youngins like myself. They weren't old, but it was like, it wasn't all their first jobs. This was my first job. And I had got this thing called Metallica and it's wild and it's spreading fast and, um, Thank God everybody got on board at Electra. There you go. Thank God.
1: Yeah. I, I had a funny side question because I think every time I go to order Chinese food, I'll think about it. Do you remember what beer and what Chinese food, what you specifically had on the table when you signed Metallica? Because right. I know it was over beer and Chinese food. I think that's a hilarious dinner party idea um sure. every time you go to the liquor store you look at beer or something like that or a Chinese food menu I think
0: that's a good sure. thing. so uh, to answer that question uh the, you know I signed them August 3rd 1984 I think that Monday they were in my office in the conference room and no I you know I'm lucky I remember my name sometime uh but no it's just I I don't no, I don't remember the kind of beer the water <laughs> and Chinese food but we ate we ate a lot of it. Um, Because we're talking about 1984, I gave them a lot of vinyl and cassettes, you know? Um, You know, they wanted stuff like uh, The Doors, The Stooges, The MC5, um, Cliff, God rest his soul, so adorable, so wonderful. Great, great, great musician. He was like, Alago, do you have Simon and Garfunkel? I'm like, darling, I don't have Simon and Garfunkel, but I will call Columbia Records. They're just down the street and get you Simon and Garfunkel. You know, Cliff always loved things that were a bit, you know, other than the misfits or esoteric. And we had a label called None Such that made a lot of orchestral and, and uh, esoteric music. So I gave it gave him a box of vinyl of that, um, and I feel like it was such a connection because remember we we are all young people in our early twenties, so they relate they knew I related to them and to the music. I wasn't an old executive, (laughs) um, you know, in that conference room with them. So, you know, we could talk about metal, we could talk about all the craziness that we'd been up to and so on. So, you know, they trusted me. And um, that was also a beautiful thing. And also I felt like after that Chinese food lunch, it almost made me feel that they never left the office. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. See,
1: it's, it's fun if you're an empath because you feel everything.
0: <laughs> you're telling mate.
1: <laughs> I love that. And I do want to say, when we spoke about this interview, I really misspoke because I knew who you were, the things you've done, accolades huh. and respect. Um, this person is a big deal, kind of feel. Is how I felt about you. But I was uninformed about how groundbreaking and pioneering it was for an openly gay man to be such a badass, big deal, and the guy to go to for a record contract in metal. So Mm -hmm. if they were for your lifestyle or against it, they had to respect it. You were an originator, a trailblazer in that sense. Anything you would like to say about that time? Sure. Uh, You know, some good times where you just like, Stood near power and it felt great. You know, know, it's a funny thing, and I don't know how
0: this came to be in my mind that I never cared what people thought about me. I I don't know how that happened, where it came from, but uh, I was, uh, I felt like I also, besides loving music coming out of the womb, I felt like I was gay coming out of the womb and I just never cared. And, you know, I always stood up for myself. Each and every time I needed to, um, if you didn't like me, go fuck yourself. You know that was my attitude, um, and I was I was um, I was openly gay, and I was always uh, like the type of person that, um, again, if you didn't like me, there's nothing I could do about it. But I wanted you, the young artist, and most of these metal artists were all guys to begin with. They all came to my office, I closed the door, and we put on music really loud, and we were all the same. And I'd like to, and I said this before, I'd like to think that when these young people left my office, I helped them be a bit more comfortable with somebody who was gay, who they may have never met a gay person before, being, you know wherever the hell they were from, in some heavy metal band that they played in a basement in their family's uh, home or whatever. So I was always open. I was always glad about being open, and I never cared what people thought about me. So that was always very helpful.
1: Good for you. I mean, that's not... That's such an original point of view, like never caring what whatever thought of you. I'm just like, oh... Because everything is so mental, and if you if you can think it, you can do it. Uh So that's such that's so interesting to think about, because you can will things into being, and everyone cares what everyone thinks about them all the time. So if you can think about, oh, I don't care what anyone thinks about me, you can start to actually encompass that, and if you choose to believe that that you can actually kind of release. Some of those things, you know, ties the mind.
0: Correct. And if that's how one feels, you know, you learn to manifest almost anything. Not everything works out, but you do, you know, because we're human beings. We're not perfect, but we do the best that we can all the time. And, uh, you know, when I wanted to get something done, I would, you know, I would wish it in my head. And a lot of times it just, it manifested right before me. And uh, again, I use the word blessing a lot because my whole life has been a blessing. I got very ill in the 90s and I thought I was gonna die and I was still drinking, believe it or not, and doing drugs. And um, I um, I had HIV and um, at one point I had full-blown AIDS and there was no medication. And I was lying on my sofa with something they call wasting syndrome. And I was, I literally was wasting away. And um, I had a doctor, her name was Barbara Starrett, fabulous lady. And um, she was smart and she worked in the labs. And she was the head of like the, uh, the, the, the HIV ward at St. Vincent's Hospital. And at one point she said, you know what, Michael, there's no medicine yet. As your primary care, we have to do something. In one arm, she gave me IV of vitamins. And this arm, she gave me an IV of something called pentamidine because my lungs were shot. And that was all very helpful. I must have lied on that sofa for about a year. And, um, I, you know, I always tell this story, and I, I like it when Matthew McConaughey made that movie, I'm um, um, Jesus. What movie did Dallas Byers Club? Oh, Dallas Byers Club. You know, at one point he was going to Mexico for these little pills. And Barbara at one point said, We're not there yet, but we got these pills from Mexico and we don't know what they're gonna do. And I said, Barbara, with when all that we we men are living with is fear, give me the damn pill. Now I took the pills. I don't know if they did they didn't do anything bad, but I didn't know if they did anything good. And then finally, you a know, medicine came out called AZT and Barbara again said, as your primary care doctor, this medication came out. I don't want you to take it. Whatever you say, you're keeping me alive here. I'm not taking it. All the young men that I knew specifically in the music business took AZT and it was in a year they were gone because they didn't know the big pharma companies didn't know how much to give them. Are you giving them this much? Are you giving them that much? And I'm, I'm grateful once again that Barbara... I never took any of that stuff. Some some medication came along about a year and a half later. Called I think it was called sequinavir. I can't believe I'm remembering all this stuff, but I guess when important things happen in one's life, you remember. And um, soon after that, I was back at work at Electra. I was skinny, 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 but I I had my uh, I got my sustenance back. Um, I think people also wondered, oh, can I hug Michael? Can I shake his hand? You know people were still leery about stuff like that. But, you know, it's like, you don't get HIV by giving somebody a handshake or hug, you know, but, you know, that was the mindset back then. In any event, you know, we can fast forward that. um, Here I am. All that was 33 years ago. I I never got sick like that again. Thank God. Uh, I think it was all The I think it was all the candles that my sweet mother, Blanche, lit to St. Jude for me uh, that helped. Um, And also, if you believe in something, you can manifest that as well. And I believed in everything my mother did for me. So here we are, 2023, and I take one pill, one state-of-the-art pill called Big Darby. And, uh, you know, I go get my bloods checked every six months and my viral load is at zero non-detectable. Now again, if that's not a blessing, if that's not a miracle, if that's not thank you, Jesus, I don't know what is, because you know, I'm one of the few of all the men that I knew in the 80s who survived.
1: It's it's such a story and it's you kind of forget how far we've come with yes. stigma of things no. because like i realized when i said like what to you i was like you know before like really researching your story like that deeply i was like isn't it more inclusive to not talk about you know just like have a gay man in metal and not talk about oh my god he's gay i was like isn't that more inclusive
0: no it's important to do that, that you both Be aware of people and things that they may not have experienced before. And maybe that's, you know, opening up somebody's mind who never would have thought of, oh, I'm meeting a J.A.N.R. person. Yes, you are. Or, you know, wow. um, My cousin, you know, like somebody would then say, my cousin has HIV as well. But, you know, it really is. It's it's a miracle that I did because I was literally wasting away. And it's a miracle that, yeah, thirty-three years or so later, I'm so I I am just so healthy, and I'm healthy because I don't drink or drug anymore. Uh, I'll be sixty-four, October thirteenth. I'll be October twenty-first. I'll have sixteen years clean and sober. And like I said, you know, my viral load is uh, non-detectable. It's great, That's wonderful, and, and I'm it grateful. Go- it goes
1: to show, like my way of thinking when I first spoke to you, of like, oh, do we need to talk about it or do we not? We, yeah, we really do because we forget how far we've come.
0: We've come. And maybe our conversation is helping the audience out there uh, hearing things they may not have heard before. And that could be a plus for them, you know?
1: Absolutely. You're, you're very right, yes. And I just researching your story it's funny how i like almost forgot i was like wow this is it wasn't that long ago and it sometimes it feels you know it feels like yeah but just kind of looking at your history and your story it's like wow you know like don't take it for granted and you know it's i don't have the i don't have the proper words to say what i mean to say but you know what i mean you know
0: these days you know uh, I don't take anything for granted. I am. A, I wake up with gratitude. I say my prayers. My prayers sometimes consist of my old Catholic school prayers, or just once my feet hit the ground, I just say, thank you, God. Thank you, universe, for waking me up. Thank you for the roof over my head. Thank you for my friends in the 12-step program. Thank you for the relationship with my sister Cheryl since mom passed away. And that list of thank yous could go by forever. I'm still I'm sick until I'm, I'm sick and tired of, of that list. But it all keeps my mind clear and focused. You know? And um where are we going with all of this?
1: Well anyway. gra- well, gratitude. Gratitude. Is, gratitude. Gratitude is the best way to keep yourself like out of depression. And like you, of course, of all people, and I want this, is, actually, this is a great segue, because I kind of, you know, wanted to ask about this, but we don't celebrate our wins, typically. You know, life comes at you fast, and you don't celebrate, so if you slow down, you're grateful, you can save yourself a lot of, like, woe is me and depression just by realizing and having a laundry list of everything that you're actually really grateful for oftentimes we don't celebrate our successes which is a great segue into a question i have for you of uh, were you like freaked out or oh my god or whoa with all of your success that you were having in your career like in the middle of it you know you had your out outward persona but were you ever like oh my god oh my god oh my god
0: no, it's so didn't, cool. No, it didn't matter. <laughs> like, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I was, just, I was just, um, a very hard worker. Okay. I was always a hard worker and I was grateful that I got to hook up and sign and, or be friends with, you know, the artists that I've mentioned previously, um, it was a blessing, I think, for both of us that we worked with each other because they learned from me and I learned from them musically things that I may not have known uh, before. But no, my my 25 years was just, uh, I don't know how I withstood the labels and how they, no you know, me, I'm saying that that my English right now is so bad. But no, I don't know how the labels put up with me or how I put up with the labels, but I did my job for 25 years, whether I was coming back from being deathly ill or whether I was coming back from rehab and I just kept my focus and I was was, uh, always clear with artists about how um, I heard the music and... uh, it was, I think, the wow factor always came in when the records were successful and they either went gold or platinum. And that was always uh, delightful, if that's a good word. Um, to good. Uh, so, I, you know, like I said, I was just always a hard worker. And um, I was grateful to work with the labels and the artists that I worked with.
1: Great question. Er- <laughs> no, great question. Great answer. Good hey, answer. Yeah. Good answer. I love cool. it. Um, so, admittedly, I don't know a lot about Cindy Lopper's career, but I know that she's an astounding, wonderful, rebellious woman, and I would like to know more about her. What are some of your favorite songs of hers? Because I would love to experience her as an artist through your lens.
0: Oh, sure. Um, you know, you must know her first big hit was Girls yes. to- Uh That was a huge debut album for her with that hair, that colorful red and yellow hair, that unique voice. That was so big and beautiful. Uh, and she just continued making great records, you know, Um I met her when she was in Blue Angel, a band that I booked at the Ritz. And then years later, we became friends because her manager, Lisa Barbaris, and I worked together, both at Elektra and at Kevin. Cindy is an extraordinary artist. She's in my documentary. She's a perfectionist, and I don't blame her. Um, Cindy had, our girls just want to have fun, time after time, true colors, all through the night. Money changes everything. And she was on a roll for a very long time. And then she wasn't on a roll, but she consistently made records. She made a very beautiful record called Hat Full of Stars. It's a beautiful recording. So that's, you know, even if you don't know where to start with her, start with the the first album, go to the and Colors album, go to Hat Full of Stars, and you'll get a nice breadth of material. From those recordings it's and i awesome. love i love sydney and you know she asked me to work with her when i had already been out of the business four years she was going to make a uh, dance recording and she said michael i'm making a dance record do you want to help i said absolutely absolutely and um she made a record called bring it to the brink like you know bring it to the edge bring it to the brink and i i assisted with her just with um working in her home studio in Connecticut and listening to the material and talking about the songs. And then a year later, she, 2010, she called me back and she said in that voice of hers, that Cindy Lauper, Brooklyn Queens voice, "Um, you know, Michael, we're going to make, I'm going to make a record and it's, I'm going to make a blues record. Did you ever make a blues record? I said, no Since She goes, well, I know you know how to make a Metallica record. I said, well, darling, did you ever make a blues record? She said no. I said, "Well, then we're on an even working plane." So again, Chinese food comes into the picture. I would go to her home on the Upper West Side and sit in her kitchen, and um, she had box full boxes full of uh, blues sets. We went on the computer and started looking up certain blues artists. We had to pick songs that would then come from a woman's point of view. Oh wow, God! Did we pick so many songs? And we sat in our kitchen eating Chinese food. It's all my <laughs> fault. The Chinese is always all my fault. We I then found that. a uh, a wonderful, wonderful younger um, producer named Scott Bomar. He had his own. He has his own uh, studio in Memphis, Tennessee. And we went down to meet with with uh, Scott. He kind of demoed two songs with Cindy. She loved them we then wound up making this recording called Memphis Blues. It's a stunning record. Uh, you know, people say, well, who would have sung Cindy Lauper could make a blues album? She did. It's extraordinary. And it got nominated for Best Contemporary Blues Album. Uh, we didn't win the Grammy. But what it signaled to both of us is that we did great work. And there you go. That was enough. So there's no little Cindy Lauper for you. Yay. With with pleasure.
1: (laughs) You're the cutest personality. I love it. It's so fun. You're such a fun person to talk to. And moving on to your favorite artist, Nina Simone. Oh, God. (laughs) Tell me about your love affair with Nina Simone as an artist
0: and a person. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, as a young kid in Brooklyn, I used to always go visit my Aunt Jenny's house. My dad says to Jenny, and she was real hip. She had records like Shaft by Isaac Hayes, Johnny Mathis, Nina Simone. I remember hearing a song back then, and to me, I don't know if I had the word androgynous in my vocabulary, but it was a very uh, deep voice. I knew it was a woman, but it was like, wow. And I heard this song she did back in the day called Mississippi God Damn. It's a song she wrote in the 60s. And um, it was about uh, the civil rights riots. It was about um, the bombing of the 16th Street uh, Baptist Church in Alabama uh, it, it spoke of the the murder of this man, Medgar Ev- Evans. Uh, and it, it, it was the song, I'm sorry, the song encapsulated the turmoil of the 60s. And I thought, wow, this is unlike any song I had heard before. So I carried that over into... Once I started buying vinyl as a teenager, I bought lots of Nina Simone. Uh, when I was at Electra, I knew I wanted to sign her, but everyone thought she was a has-been. Never a has-been in my book. Book, you know, she was uh, she was an artist that could sing anything from Bob Dylan to George Harrison, and she did, and she did it beautifully. And those songs, it makes you think, oh, wait a minute. Did she write that? She didn't. She just was an artist who knew how to handle all types of material. So it's 1983. I go see her at Irving Plaza, which we been called Swing Plaza. They wanted it to have sound very jazzy. I never thought of her as a jazz artist simply for the reasons that I just told you. She could sing anyone's song and make it her own. Uh, we have to fast forward now almost 10 years later. And I sign her to Elektra. We make a a very beautiful record about love and loneliness loneliness and loss called A Single Woman. Uh, It was produced by Andre Fisher. He was the drummer in Chaka Khan's band Rufus. At the time, he was married to Natalie Cole. He was extraordinary. And um, it was a a bit of a love fest, except when she was in a mood, and it wasn't a love fest. I executive produced the album, which meant that I helped pick the material the recording because like I said to you, all recordings should have a beginning a middle and end and tell a story. So we made that record uh she refused to go she refused to go on the road to promote it. She did the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. We got an extraordinary write-up by James Gavin in the New York Times and after that she just told me she wasn't doing anything to uh promote the record. very typical of Nina Simone but I gave her a pass all the time. I didn't care. I didn't care. So um, we stayed in touch that whole time, even when she was dropped from Electra. The very last time I saw her was 1999. I went to her show in London. It was part of a series that Nick Cave from the birthday party was putting together. Every night, it was a different artist. One night, it was Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. One night, it was Elvis Costello. One night, it was Suicide. One night, it was Nina Simone. And i um, so I went to our hotel in London with two dozen white roses and a bottle of champagne. It's July, I believe, of 1999. She sees me come into the room and she's like, oh, my darling, my sugar lips. What are you doing? I said, I'm coming to see you tonight. She chased all the women in her um, hotel room out. They were cornrowing her hair. They were ironing her clothes. And she said, let's take a bubble bath. So she got naked. I, I was, uh, this is where the fear came in on my part. Uh, I was not going to get naked, but I took off everything but my box of shorts. We got into the bathtub. We laughed like teenagers. We drank champagne. I saw her that night at the Meltdown series. It was an extraordinary show. And there are stories about that night as well, but they'll go on for too long, which is why I encourage people to get my book, I Am Michael Alago. The Nina Simone chapter is the longest chapter of the whole darn book, with pleasure, once again. Uh, We stayed in touch. Uh, 1999 goes by, and she is uh, ill. She has a stroke. She has breast cancer. And um, I loved her so much, so much. And um, something happened, which I will never forget. I was going, it's mid-April 2003. I was going to my dad's grave um, in Brooklyn. And I was bringing, like, you know, cleaning stuff because, you know, the dead of winter, I wanted to, to clean the gravestone and put some new plants there and stuff. And something said to me as I was leaving the house, call Nina. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's heavy in my head. Call Nina. So I called Exxon Provence in the south of France, and the housekeeper answers. And I said, um, Hi, is uh, Dr. Simone there? Because I always like to be proper with anybody who works for her. And she said, Oh, is this Mr. Lago? I said, Yes. She said, Oh, you can't. She's not up for speaking to anybody. She's really, very ill. So when Nina knew it was me on the phone again, she said, Is that my sugar lips? How come you didn't marry me? So the, the housekeeper knew to put her on the phone, and I said, "Hello, my darling. How are you?" She said, "I'm not good." I said, "It's okay. You'll get better." Um, she said, "How come? How no, we never got married? Are you gay and everything?" But that didn't mean that we could never get married. I said, "Well, you know what? I love you so much. I am going to my dad's um, grave today, but..." Um, have Clifton, her assistant, either call me back or have Juanita, the housekeeper, call me. And I'm going to get on a flight in the next day or so to uh, the south of France. I go deal with my dad's stuff. I come back home. Usually, I don't leave the um, computer on overnight. And I left the computer on overnight. And I usually don't have CNN or MSNBC on my computer. I wake up the next day, I turn on, uh, you know, I click on so that I can see what's going on, and on the top of the screen, it said, Nina Simone, dead at seven, blew my mind, oh, I cried for the longest time, couldn't believe it, just spoke to her the night before, day before, and I knew she really wasn't well, but I didn't know she was just going to. Go. And I couldn't listen to her music for, I don't know, the next year or two. I just couldn't do it. And then finally, something said, Wait a minute. You love this woman so much. Put on the music, celebrate the artist. And I did that. And, uh, you know, for all my years since then, I love Nita Simone. I can listen to every single one of her records. And she was a joy to have in my life, as I believe I was a joy to have in her life because we really did love each other she was extraordinary and um and that's it you know we 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 just loved each other it was a great thing so that's my that's that's some of my nina simone stories (laughs) that is so beautiful and
1: doesn't that does a little story like that just make all the pain of life
0: worthwhile. Oh yes, I yes, so. mm-hmm. indeed.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that.
0: Oh, it's deeply God.
1: personal. Thank you for sharing
0: that. My pleasure. And,
1: and that you know, give your give yourself grace and slack. You know, like when you're a two, even that's like really quick to even start listening again because it's like so profound and it's
0: so very profound. It's
1: so. It's so so bad to listen. Yes. You know?
0: But like I said, something in my head about a year or two later said, what are you doing? Celebrate me. Put the music back on. Sing to it. Dance to it. Just, you know, celebrate your friend. Celebrate your friend. And I did that. And it was cathartic.
1: What's your go-to song when you're like, Going to go put her music on. What do you always go to first?
0: Oh, oh, that's a good one. Um, She made a record called. Well, there are a few. There's Nina Simone in concert. There's Forbidden Fruit. There isn't one particular song. But if you're asking me, I'm going to change the subject a little (laughs) and lift and lift both of our spirits up a bit. Um, one of my favorite rock tunes, if I want to pick myself up, or if on my way, if I'm my, I I am on my way to go to a concert. I'll turn up Wood from Allison Chain, written by Jerry Cantrell. Um, one of my favorite rock songs ever, ever. And you know that song? They wrote that for, um, what's the kid's name? Andrew Wood from Mother Love Bone. And, uh, you know, wood and wood are what they call, what is that called? Homophones, where words sound the same, but they're spelled differently and they are um, they have different meanings. But uh, what a dark song and just one of my all time favorite rock songs that if I'm going out, or if I want to lift my spirits, or if I want to hear something super duper loud and hope that the neighbors don't come in and ask me to lower the music, I play that album. You know, I listen to Wood. I play that album, Dirt. Today, as a matter of fact, on my Facebook page, on the top of the page, I was writing about or just... Posted about my two favorite albums recently again it is metallica 1991 the black album and allison Chains' dirt 1992 um so i've been listening to a lot of those two records and um i didn't want to abruptly um change the channel so to speak <laughs> but you know we we gave nina a lot of time here and i spoke yeah. lovingly and uh Beautifully about her, and like I said, she's the biggest chapter in my memoir. So one can read about her there. One can read some fun stuff about Metallica in the book, and just about the history of my life and music, and getting sober from alcohol, and surviving great health scares. And um, here we are.
2: This podcast is produced by me, edited by Taylor Anderson. If you want to support the show, share it with a friend, or rate and review on iTunes. It helps so much with the growth of the show, really does. You can follow me on Instagram at Scandalous Official. And if you're interested in being a podcast sponsor or have any feedback for the show, you can email me directly at press at
0: scandalousofficial.com.